Hello and welcome to our Wednesday webinar from the IEA Clinical Centre. My name is Benedicta and I'm the Communications Officer here. Our monthly webinars are based on our technical reports, which are available from our website www.iea-coal.org. Residents of member countries and employees of sponsoring organisations can download our reports at no charge after one-off registration. The subject for today's webinar is Carbon Prices and Their Impact on Coal, presented by Stephanie Metzger. Take it away, Stephanie. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephanie Metzger. Um, I'll be hosting today's webinar. Thank you so much for logging on. And today we will be looking at carbon prices and their impact on coal. So today's topic is about carbon prices, which have become an increasingly common tool for fighting climate change. Coal power, though, is still used in many jurisdictions that also use carbon pricing, so it's an important topic for us to look at. Carbon prices overall have seemed to cause somewhat of a shift away from coal, but it depends on the area and the jurisdiction that the carbon price has been implemented in. So let's examine why that's the case. First, before we go further, we'll take a look at carbon prices in a little bit more detail. And we'll go over some definitions and then see where in the world carbon prices have been implemented so far. So what is carbon pricing? Carbon pricing is defined as initiatives that put an explicit price on greenhouse gas emissions expressed in a monetary unit per ton of CO2 equivalent. Carbon pricing policies target carbon emissions by setting the price per ton of emissions or the total quantity of emissions allowed in the system. Both mechanisms allow the market to determine the equilibrium. If a price is set, the quantity of emissions is decided by the market, while a limit on the total emissions will result in a price decided by the market. Economists like carbon prices because they should result in emissions reductions at the least cost. In other words, it is economically efficient. A price-only mechanism for carbon pricing is usually achieved with a carbon tax. Conversely, a quantity-based strategy places a cap on the total amount of emissions permitted in the jurisdiction, allocates emissions allowances to firms, and then allows them to trade with one another to obtain the correct amount of allowances to cover their emissions. This system is often called cap and trade or an emissions trading system or ETS. Carbon taxes and emissions trading systems are the main explicit carbon pricing schemes, but many jurisdictions also use indirect pricing mechanisms such as fuel taxes. This webinar today will concentrate on the two main mechanisms, carbon taxes and emissions trading systems as they are the focus of questions about policy, design, and the efficacy of carbon pricing for achieving large emissions reductions. So why are carbon prices important? As of the publication of the 2019 World Bank report, The State and Trends of Carbon Pricing, of the 185 parties that have submitted their nationally determined contributions to the Paris Agreement, 
96 of them have stated that they are planning or considering the use of carbon pricing as a tool to meet their commitments. This represents 55% of global emissions. So far, there are 28 emissions trading systems in regional, national, and subnational jurisdictions, and 29 carbon prices, uh, sorry, carbon taxes, primarily applied on a national level. In total, these carbon pricing initiatives cover 11 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent, or about 20% of global emissions. In addition to their increasing prevalence across the world, carbon prices are important because they affect investment decisions in industry, and in particular, the power sector. A carbon price raises the cost of doing business as usual. Highly polluting activities become more expensive, and comparatively, switching to lower carbon practices is less expensive overall. Thus, companies may invest in new technology or change their business models to account for the long-term savings from avoiding carbon pricing. In the electricity sector, the switch is, fairly, is, is fairly straightforward. Companies wishing to supply electricity should choose less carbon-intensive sources of energy in order to avoid heavy costs from carbon prices. For example, switching from coal to gas or any fossil fuel to a renewable source makes sense under a high enough carbon charge. We can see from this map that some of the countries with carbon prices include the European Union, China, Australia, South Africa, Japan, and regions like the Northeastern United States and Central Canada. All of these places also use coal for electricity generation. Next, it is important to look at how we design carbon prices. The design is very important because it determines who is involved and how effective it will be. Emissions trading systems and carbon taxes share a lot of characteristics, which we will examine first, and then we'll look at a few ETS-specific considerations. So the first and most obvious aspect to choose is which sectors or firms will be covered. Major industries targeted by carbon pricing policies to date include the power sector, heavy industries such as steel, cement, and chemical producers, and aviation. Some schemes also include more diffuse sources of emissions, such as transport in California, waste in South Korea, New Zealand, and Australia, and forestry in New Zealand. Furthermore, regulators can decide to focus on upstream or downstream actors. Upstream entities are those that produce inputs, such as coal mines, oil and gas refineries, and fuel distributors. Conversely, downstream pricing applies to diffuse sources of emissions. Some larger point sources, such as factories, can be identified and screened for emissions, but smaller emitters, such as cars, can be harder to assess. Generally, upstream regulation is done through a carbon tax, while an emissions trading system regulates downstream sources. The design of a carbon pricing system also affects carbon leakage, which occurs when a domestic carbon price causes economic activities and related emissions to move to jurisdictions without equivalent policies. Accordingly, it may be in a government's best interest to accommodate some level of emissions in at-risk industries in order to maintain the economic benefits and the environmental oversight. The risk of carbon leakage should be reduced over time as more jurisdictions introduce carbon pricing schemes. 
Now a few considerations for emissions trading systems only. First, policymakers must decide to use free allocation or auctioning in order to allocate emissions allowances to firms covered by the ETS. Under a free allocation, firms automatically receive a set number of allowances. There are a few common accounting methods used to determine the distribution, grandfathering, benchmarking, and output-based allocation. Grandfathering provides firms with emissions allowances based on their historical emissions. Sector-based benchmarking sets standards for an entire industry, sector, or product. The number of allowances provided to each company is set based on performance data from the industry. For example, the level of emissions may be linked to the top uh, performance of the top 10% of companies or the industry average. Finally, output-based allocation updates the number of permits provided for free based on actual production at the company level. Regulators can also distribute emissions credits via an auction. Most ETSs sell at least some portion of their total allowances, and this provides extra revenue to the government. Finally, market stability is extremely important for a well-functioning ETS. Price floors, price ceilings, and banking and borrowing can help stabilize the market. There are a few methods for implementing a price floor within a carbon market. First, an auction reserve price sets a minimum price below which allowances will not be sold at auction. Next, a fixed or variable charge adds a fee to the price of an emissions allowance. The level of the fee is the price floor. If an allowance is worth zero, then only the extra charge remains and sets the lowest cost possible price. The methods for setting price ceilings are similar to those for a price floor. For instance, fixed maximum fees for emissions can act as a price ceiling when permit prices rise above a desired level. The quantity of allowances in the market can also be adjusted to try to ease the upward or downward pressure on prices. Finally, Banking and borrowing are mechanisms that provide some intertemporal flexibility in an ETS. Banking allows companies to save extra emissions allowances from one compliance period for use in a future one, while borrowing works in the reverse. Firms may use permits from future years in the current compliance period. Each of these design choices will impact how the carbon tax or ETS works, if it achieves its goals, and if it affects the coal sector. Let's return to the map from slide three and take a closer look at a carbon price in a few different countries to see some examples of how they work in real life. First up is the EU ETS, the largest and longest running system in the world. The European Union emissions trading system began in 2005 and it is the largest emissions trading scheme to date. It is proceeded in four phases. Phase one lasted from 2005 to 2007 and it acted as a pilot phase to build experience with the new system. Phase two, from 2008 to 2012, made some adjustments from the first phase to improve the system. The scope of industries covered was broadened to include the aviation sector, and a small number of permits were auctioned, beginning the shift towards auctioning as the main permit distribution mechanism. Emissions reductions did occur during this period, but they were mostly because of the economic slowdown, resulting in a surplus of allowances and depressed prices. 
Phase three of the EU ETS from 2013 to 2020 saw more structural changes to the program. First, nat national emissions caps were eliminated in favor of an EU-wide limit. The European Commission also adjusted the cap and auction strategy to balance the supply of allowances. Because of the banking of credits from phase two, they deferred auctioning 900 million allowances until the 2019-2020 uh, 2020 auction period in order to reduce the supply in the short term. Moreover, the market stability reserve was introduced in 2019. This program takes undistributed allowances off the market. In addition to unsold allowances, the 900 million deferred allowances from the beginning of phase three were also deemed superflu superfluous and reserved rather than auctioning later as originally planned. Finally, phase four will begin in 2021 and last until 2030. Here, the rate of reduction of the overall emissions cap will quicken from a 1.74% decrease per year in this phase to a 2.2% decrease per year. Furthermore, free allocation of permits will only be used in cases where there is a high risk of carbon leakage. Next, the China ETS and pilot ETSs. China has outlined its intention to establish a national carbon trading system through its five-year plans. The process of designing, testing, and implementing such a regime has gone through multiple stages, including both regional and national pilot programs. The Chinese ETS is expected to cover 3 to 3.5 billion tons of CO2 emissions every year, twice the amount included in the EU ETS. Covered emissions would account for approximately 30% of domestic emissions and 8% of world emissions. The China ETS was intended to begin real spot trading in 2020, but it appears that a final decision to begin has not yet been made. The Chinese ETS will only include the power sector at first, and the pilot programs will remain independent, but the aim is to integrate them over time. Regulators are also building many safeguards into the ETS, reflecting the concern of Chinese officials about the effects on economic growth and development. First, the program will begin with free allocation of permits. And second, the Chinese climate agreement targets are based on emissions intensity reductions, not absolute emissions reductions. So the ETS will also calculate emissions by that metric. China began to test its ETS concept in 2013 in seven pilot cities and regions. Aspects of the national system will likely be modeled on these pilots. Most importantly, it appears that allowances will be allocated through a system of stratified benchmarks modeled on the Shanghai pilot. Shanghai divides the power sector into categories according to unit type and installed capacity and sets a benchmark for each category according to local units production uh, product energy consumption limits, and advanced energy efficiency values. This type of stratified benchmarking is likely to be the model for the national ETS. In theory, benchmark standards incentivize emissions reductions because they measure against the highest performing companies in the industry. Performing below the standards results in an underallocation of emissions allowances. However, high levels of stratification of the sector may undermine this theoretical efficiency. Since the Chinese government still views coal power as an important driver of economic growth, 
It may use stratified benchmarks along the lines of the Shanghai pilot to shield lower performing plants from the burden of carbon abatement. This may be especially important in light of the economic slowdown caused by COVID-19. Now that we know how carbon prices are designed, we need to examine whether they actually work as expected. There are a number of issues that cause carbon prices to work differently than the economic literature suggests. Carbon prices often face barriers that economists cannot predict. We'll look at four main issues here. First, it is impossible to know the exact cost of abatement, and overall estimates do not reflect the distribution of costs from person to person or business to business. Economists, who usually measure a system by its efficiency, use the social cost of carbon, which maximizes the net present value of the benefits of emissions reduction minus its cost. However, some policymakers may prefer other metrics. For example, measuring success as meeting the Paris Agreement targets of less than two degrees warming may result in different cost estimates. Moreover, other market regulations and interactions can be hard to capture in predictive economic modeling. As a result, there will always be some gap between the projected and actual efficiency under a carbon price. Second, policymakers have many social, political, and economic factors to consider when developing policies like a carbon price. The complex realities of the political process, negotiations, lobbying, budget procedures, and more, provide ample opportunities for actors to influence the design of the carbon tax or ETS. Also, regulators have to worry about the often conflicting impacts of the policy on specific constituencies, such as low-income citizens or workers in targeted industries. Trade-offs are inherent in the policy process, and different governments have different priorities from strict climate goals to industry protection and even tax reform. Because of these constraints, a pure carbon pricing scheme alone will often lead to suboptimal outcomes relative to what economic theory predicts. Third, economists expect that anticipated future carbon pricing will drive businesses to innovate in order to decrease the costs of abatement. However, unpredictability in carbon pricing regimes can reduce this incentive. Businesses have to take into account more than just carbon prices when making decisions about new investments and other factors may contradict or even override the signal from the carbon price. For example, power companies discount future costs, focusing more on upfront capital when making investment decisions. Under uncertain conditions, they may be more willing to pursue small, short-term upgrades rather than large, costly long-term investments. Smaller investments with shorter payback times are more palatable because they have a clearer effect on the business's cash flow. Some companies may even prefer not to make investments at all due to the risk of future unprofitability. The coal power sector in Europe is currently facing this dilemma as carbon prices rise and many EU nations have mandated plans to phase out coal power in the near future. Finally, policies that affect energy use can interact with an ETS and undermine the allowance price and the trading market. Governments have enacted rules and regulations that both support and penalize fossil fuels, renewable sources of energy, energy efficiency measures, and other factors that affect the sources and use of electricity. Often these policies contradict one another 
and they can undermine the market mechanisms that underpin a carbon price. Low and volatile carbon prices can also affect the stability and outcomes of carbon pricing systems, especially emissions trading systems. Many emissions trading systems have suffered from a lack of market stability. The EU ETS and the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or RGGI, in the northeastern US are two examples of this, as we can see on the chart. The EU ETS allowance price is charted in navy blue, and the RGGI allowance price is in pink. The EU ETS has suffered from several growing pains, most notably the low and at times volatile allowance price. You can see on the graph that the EU allowance price has followed a U-shape, beginning high in the late 2000s, dipping down during most of the last decade, and finally rising again within the last two years. Economic recession, renewable energy and energy efficiency policies, and the banking of allowances have all contributed to this problem. Low demand for emissions allowances caused a drop in the price from a high of nearly 32 euros in July 2008 to a low of under 9 euros in February 2009. Allowance prices bottomed out below 5 euros in 2014. The price finally increased again beginning at the end of 2018, and it has since risen to a high of around 30 euros in July 2019. The current price is hovering around the low 20s. The RGGI has also had low permit prices for most of its lifetime. Much of this has been due to the fracking boom. Fracking dramatically increased the supply of natural gas, and gas prices dropped by 46% from 2005 to 2011. Low gas prices made the gas power plants much more competitive against coal, and gas rose higher on the dispatch order. Since the RGGI only covers the power sector, it was greatly impacted by this large-scale transition from coal to gas. The cap set by the RGGI ended up being too high, and allowance prices fell to the auctioned minimum price during the early 2010s. Again, you can see the RGGI price on the pink line of the graph. The interesting takeaway for coal here is that the absolute price doesn't actually matter in and of itself. Instead, it's the combination of the carbon price and other factors such as fuel prices, which determine what type of fuel is used for electricity. Low allowance prices and cheap coal in the EU meant that coal power was still viable throughout the 2010s. However, in the RGGI and the surrounding states, gas prices dropped so low that even low carbon price tipped the balance in favor of gas power. Now that we understand carbon prices in theory and some issues that affect them in practice, it's time to more closely examine how carbon prices affect coal. There are a number of important issues for coal, including the trend of fuel switching, carbon leakage, and technological innovation. First up is fuel switching, in this case, switching from coal to gas-fired power plants. Fuel switching is one of the main channels through which carbon pricing is expected to reduce emissions. This effect should occur because a carbon price impacts the variable costs of producing electricity, resulting in a change in the dispatch order of power plants. Natural gas plants usually have a smaller emissions footprint than coal-fired ones. Historically, however, the price of coal has been significantly lower than that of gas. Therefore, 
Under a low or no carbon price scenario, coal will be dispatched first because of its lower operating costs. For example, based on 2016 fuel prices in Europe, gas plants had much higher variable costs than coal and lignite plants at 40 euros per megawatt hour versus 25 euros and 5 euros per megawatt hour respectively. At the same time, the low carbon price that persisted in the EU ETS throughout the 2010s had little impact on the variable cost of power plants. Coal-fired plants continued to be a major source of electricity in Europe during this period. However, in light of higher carbon prices, coal use in Europe declined significantly in 2019 as compared to the equivalent time periods in 2018. All Western European countries saw big percentage falls, as you can see on this map, from 22% in Germany to 79% in Ireland. Coal accounted for less than 2% of the electricity mix in Ireland, France, and the UK, and only 6% in Spain and Italy in the first half of 2019. About half of the lost coal capacity was picked up by wind and solar power, especially in countries like the UK, which have built out significant wind infrastructure in recent years. Increased utilization of natural gas plants accounted for the other half of generation. For example, in June 2019, near to the peak of EU allowance prices, Germany derived 40% of its electricity from gas generators. Comparatively, hard coal and lignite use decreased by 41% and 38% respectively, compared to the same time in 2018. The UK provides an even better case study in fuel switching, as it saw this trends a trend a few years before the rest of Europe because of its carbon price support policy. The carbon price support raised the variable cost of operating coal-fired power plants, making them relatively more expensive than natural gas plants. Despite the fuel costs of a gas plant still being higher, gas outperformed coal, especially once the carbon price support increased from nine pounds to 18 pounds in 2015. The UK carbon tax caused coal to gas switching at a price of about 20 to 25 pounds per ton, which includes the EU ETS allowance price and the UK carbon tax. Research suggests that the tax is responsible for 73% of the reduction in coal generation from 2012 to 2016 in the UK. Britain now relies on coal for a very small portion of its electricity generation. In the third quarter of 2019, coal was the smallest source of energy, representing only 0.6% of the energy mix. Carbon leakage in electricity markets is the next issue, and it is of special concern for us because it often relates directly to coal power production. Because of the interconnections between electricity grids, when a carbon price is implemented in one jurisdiction, it can simply import cheaper power from neighbors without a price. This has been the case in the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which covers nine states in the northeastern U.S. The U.S. power grid is divided into several regional transmission organizations, as you can see on the map. Trade between, between grids grew after the introduction of the RGGI, with a statistically significant increase in imports of power from Pennsylvania and Ohio into New York. These imports were necessary to compensate for decreased local generation. Specifically, in the RGGI region, 
coal capacity factors fell 9 to 10 percentage points, while gas generators appeared unaffected by the program. Conversely, in Pennsylvania and Ohio, the RGGI led to 10 to 15 percentage points increases in capacity factors for natural gas combined cycle generators, with mixed results for coal generators. Shifting from a local to an out-of-state power supply has allowed states to meet their emissions reductions targets under the RGGI system. However, this change means that estimating overall emissions is a little more complicated. Imported power is not subject to the program, so it can be used without counting towards emissions output under its rules. Furthermore, the shale gas boom that occurred at the turn of the 2010s corresponded with the introduction of the RGGI. These pre-existing conditions caused a shift from coal use in RGGI states to imports of gas-fired electricity from Pennsylvania and Ohio. When examining the abatement impact of the RGGI, it is important to include the emissions that have leaked to other regions. It is estimated that the RGGI decreased emissions within the region by about 8.8 .8 million tons annually and increased emissions in surrounding areas by about 4.5 million tons annually. The difference calculates to a net decrease of 4.3 million tons of CO2. This amount is a truer representation of the impact of the RGGI. Finally, let's examine the role of carbon prices in technology support. Research on changes in innovation in carbon price jurisdictions indicates that a carbon tax or ETS may spur on increased research and development in low carbon technology, although the effect can vary depending on local circumstances. The literature on innovation notes the importance of government and policy support during the early stages of technological development and deployment. In addition to early stage R&D funding, government funding is imperative for de-risking demonstration projects for private investors and diffusing technology on a wider scale. Without dedicated support, projects can easily fall out of favor before being proven, potentially wasting opportunities for technological breakthroughs. Carbon pricing programs have been used as a source of funding for these government supports. For example, the EU ETS has earmarked some revenues from the sale of emissions allowances for technology development and deployment. During the third phase, the New Entrance Reserve, or NER 300, dedicated the proceeds from 300 million permits to technology demonstration projects. A new innovation fund will be created in phase four to provide funding at the value of 450 million allowances, which is estimated to be approximately 10 billion euros. It will focus on four major areas, carbon capture, utilization and storage, renewable energy, energy storage, and innovation in energy intensive industry. This fund mainly focuses on overcoming the financial barriers to new projects by providing up to 60% of the additional capital and operating costs of innovation. Such support could be extremely important for the future of carbon capture, utilization, and storage in particular. For example, Norway has two of the most successful and long-running carbon capture installations in the world, and it was also one of the first countries to adopt a carbon tax. Conversely, the Netherlands Rotterdam Capture and Storage Demonstration Project was canceled in 2017 because of funding concerns, in particular due to the low carbon price in the EU ETS at the time. If completed, it would have been a major demonstration of CCS for coal power plants. 
Finally, let's look at some key takeaways from the presentation today. First, carbon pricing is not a one-size-fits-all solution. Each jurisdiction needs to tailor its carbon price to its own specific socioeconomic conditions and take into consideration its broader policy goals. Next, multiple market failures require multiple solutions. A slate of complementary policies may work better than just a carbon price alone at achieving the climate and economic priorities of each jurisdiction. Third, carbon taxes and carbon trading are not mutually exclusive. In fact, a hybrid between the two can address the failings each one encounters alone. And finally, the impact on the power sector, and coal specifically, massively depends on the broader climate and economic goals of the state that has crafted the carbon pricing system. If a country has already decided to phase out coal power, the carbon price will most likely hasten this transition. So thank you for listening. I'm happy to answer any questions. I'll be taking a look just now to see what we've got. Um, and I will answer as many questions as I can, um, but if I don't get to yours, I will be contacting you later to follow up and make sure uh, I can answer. So just hang on one second and we'll take a look at the questions. All right, looks like we've got a couple coming in. So let's start with this one. How much have subsidies for renewables depressed carbon prices? So I think the answer to that somewhat depends on uh, the jurisdiction, but I think they have depressed carbon quite prices quite a bit, um, although indirectly. So the reason that increasing uh, renewables has affected carbon prices is because they decrease the demand for emissions allowances. Um, this is mostly in, in, in ETS, in an emissions trading system. So basically what happens is the ETS has a certain number of permits available and supply and demand mean, if the supply and demand are balanced, then there is uh, the price in the market should say the cost of abatement and show um, you know, how much people value um, emissions permits. But adding renewables in the system outside of the carbon price, so for example, using government subsidies that don't aren't connected to the carbon price at all to add more renewables into the system means that electricity providers are going to be demanding less permits overall. Um, and so with basic rules of supply and demand, when there is extra supply but demand um, or when there's, yeah, the same supply, but demand goes down, um, the price will go down as well because no one is really demanding the permits. So that's how prices get depressed um, with renewable, or because of renewable subsidies. So it's sort of an indirect an indirect mechanism. Um, the reason it's, it's really a, an issue, for example, in the EU ETS has been that the cap on emissions, the total amount of emissions allowances that are in the system, has not been able to adjust fast enough to the um, changes in the in the system, the changes in the market, 
And this happened both has happened for uh, both because of things like renewable subsidies, but also because of the economic crash in 2008, for example. So basically, every time there has been um, a shock to the system, like the carbon, or sorry, like the economic crash in 2008, there has been too many allowances and not enough demand, which has caused prices to go down. And that's why we saw prices stay low throughout the 2010s. Um, the EU ETS has implemented a uh, the market stability reserve recently in 2019 it started and the point of that is to be able to remove allowances from the system uh, as as like a sort of more intermediate uh, at a, a more intermediate time frame if it seems like the supply is out of line with the demand so basically um, what it does is every year it evaluates how many uh, how many allowances are on the market, how many are being unused or uh, unpurchased, and it can take those out to sort of rebalance the supply and demand. And so that just started last year. So we're going to see if it if it helps. Um, it appears to be helping, but it will remain to be seen in the future um, how much it can sort of catch up and make sure that the supply and demand remains balanced. So I hope that answered your question. Um, if you have Another follow-up, please feel free to send it in. Let's see what else we've got now. Um, okay, another question. Given investment horizon and energy infrastructure is say 20 years, how could government respond in a support, of, uh, support environment to encourage private capital to be deployed for emissions reduction initiatives? Yeah, so I think that's a great question um, because the timeline for energy infrastructure is quite long and oftentimes policy changes can happen in a shorter time period. Um, and that can be really confusing and oftentimes contradictory to the types of investments that are being made. So a great example of that is uh, in the Netherlands, which just opened three new coal power plants in 2015. And so if they started planning those plants in maybe 2005, or even 2010, that would have been way before the time that we knew um, how the emissions trading system price in the EU was going to, uh, what, what level the emissions allowance price was going to be. Um, you know, for a something that is opened in 2015, I can imagine they started planning that when the emissions trading system was barely even existing. So it's hard to take that into account. So I think the important thing is that governments um, set out their policy goals for a longer time frame. So for example, um, again, the EU ETS, when it was originally implemented in 2005, um, it was, there are four stages. The last stage ends in 2030. And technically they haven't said that it's going to continue after that. Um, I imagine it will, but they haven't set up, you know, stage uh, phase five of the system, for example, which starts in 2031. So for someone who's trying to make an investment, um, they won't know what's going on and that doesn't make a good business, a stable business environment for them to make that investment. So I think governments need to um, set out longer time periods for their policies. So people know that uh, things like a carbon price are still going to be existing 20, 30, 50 years in the future. Um, so I think that's one thing. The other thing is that there are other um, types of um, policies like 
for example, contracts for difference or feed and tariffs that you can use to um, give some um, sort of stability in prices that, say, uh, a power plant is going to get over the lifetime of the power plant. Um, we have some other reports on that uh, that other analysts here have done. So I highly encourage you to look up um, look up on our website to see what other reports we have on those issues because they all definitely um, interact with one another. Okay, so let's see. Okay, next question. Wouldn't policies and measures like energy efficiency standards uh, together with renewable energy and CCUS uh, targets be more effective than an ETS? Um, so I think that depends on, on what your goals are. Uh, certainly, just building renewable energy, for example, or providing direct subsidies for things like energy efficiency, um, or mandating that any new buildings, for example, or new power plants or whatever, um, hit certain standards is a more direct way of making sure that certain environmental targets, um, emissions targets are being um, are being hit than an ETS, which is supposed to allow emissions reductions to happen in wherever it is at the least cost. Um, so it really depends on your outlook on what your goals are and what your opinion of the different of mechanisms are. So a lot of economists and people who perhaps are in international organizations like the World Bank like um, carbon taxes or ETSs because they are a mechanism that's based on the free market. Um, an ETS especially, they let um, emissions reductions happen in the places that uh, can do them most cheaply. Basically, the point is, is they're not picking a winner or a loser, as some people say, um, in terms of like what technologies or what projects are going to be undertaken. But it also can obviously be effective as well to just um, implement standards for how much renewable energy to have or to fund CCUS projects directly. Um, so again, I think it depends. And, and you can actually see that a lot of countries have done um, both types. They've done more of these command and control type projects like mandating renewable energy, but also done something like an ETS or a carbon tax. Um, I think the important thing is that, I think a combination of the methods probably could be the most effective, but the important thing to remember is that um, command and control policies like mandating renewable energy is going to affect uh, the market as we discussed before. And so it may impact the effectiveness of the ETS. So you just have to um, take that into account. And this question, I think, really highlights the complexities of the policy decisions that are being made. Um, so it's really easy for us to look at governments and say, oh, why aren't you just doing this or that? It seems really obvious. Like, why don't they just fund a bunch of CCUS projects? Why don't they just fund renewable energy projects, whatever? Um, and it is actually a very complex process because all of these different projects and priorities can interact with one another and sometimes contradict each other um, in ways that we might not expect when we're thinking about it just from our single perspective. So I think that's important to keep in mind. All right, let's see what else.
So another question, good question is, could the Chinese ETS have an effect on coal to gas switching, or is this not possible under the proposed model? Um, I think it's unlikely that this will happen, mostly because uh, of the fact that China doesn't really have much gas infrastructure at the moment, and their coal infrastructure is already, they already have an overcapacity in coal. So, um, so that's the basic issue. But even if they do have more gas or with the little gas that they have, um, it's unlikely for there to be um, coal to gas switching in the China case because of the fact that they've, they're going to be stratifying um, the different groups of energy producers so much. So this means that they're going to be giving out emissions permits to different groups based on different standards. And the different groups are going to be, for example, ultra supercritical plants are going to be in their, old, their own benchmark group, supercritical plants in their own group, subcritical plants in their own group, um, and gas plants will also be in their own group. So each of these groups will only be competing within their own group to get uh, to make sure they receive enough allowances. The reason ca uh, coal to gas switching happens in like the EU, for example, is because um, there is excess gas capacity and coal and gas are competing directly. So unless the Chinese system um, ends up being made that coal and gas are competing, uh, which is looking unlikely, then it is also unlikely that there will be any coal to gas switching at the moment. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, it's we're still waiting on some details from China um, to see how exactly their system is going to be run. And I think it may have been pushed back a bit um, because of the current situation this year. Um, finally, I think we've got just two more questions that are actually pretty similar. One is, what carbon price is needed to make CCS economic? And the other is, um, what is the cost of carbon capture nowadays or in the status of different technologies? So uh, I don't know the costs um, off the top of my head, um, but I do know that we have some other reports on that. Again, if you go on our website, you can see all of our reports there. And we definitely have some research um, on that issue. And it's an ongoing thing because obviously the costs, um, as we learn more about the technologies, the costs are going to go down. So I think the cost to make CCS um, economic, what carbon price level, depends on um, the cost of the technology, which may vary from place to place, uh, as well as the cost of or where they're they're putting it, like what plants they're putting it on. So it depends on if the plant is older or newer. Um, and it also will depend on what fuel is being used. So it's hard to say an exact an exact price, but I believe estimates, I'll confirm this and get back to you, but I believe estimates say that it needs to be, the carbon price needs to be around um, maybe 80 to $100, which would be, like 60 to 80 euros maybe, or 60 to 80 pounds um, in order for carbon capture to be economic at the moment. Um, again, this is often because of the fact that there's so much risk involved in carbon capture because we haven't done it very much, which is why some systems are starting to direct some of their revenues actually towards doing these demonstration projects that should hopefully help to make the technology a little bit more available on a wider scale and a little bit cheaper. So. Um, so yeah, again, a carbon price can help make CCS economic just directly by making emitting expensive, but it can also help uh, enable it to happen by using the revenue from carbon pricing to fund those sort of demonstration products and provide 
help on those capital costs um, like the innovation fund will be doing in the EU ETS um, starting next year. So definitely watch for that to see if, if carbon capture gets any of that money. Um, I think that's that's basically all we've got right now. One final question actually is, do you expect any big changes to the Korea ETS in the next phase? And I actually um, am not don't have an answer to that at the moment. I'm not 100% sure um, what's going to be happening there. So I will take a look into that and get back to you. Um, but otherwise, I think that's all the questions that we have today. If anyone has any other questions that come up later on, please feel free to send me an email. Um, I'd be happy to discuss this more and answer any questions. Um, but otherwise, thank you all for attending today, and I hope that this presentation was informative and interesting. Great. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Um, all I need to say now is that the, the slides from this webinar will obviously be available to download from our website um, shortly. And the next webinar from us will be on Wednesday, the 15th of July at the same time as usual, 12 noon. And it will be on digital transformation of the coal sector and will be presented by Chen Su. Thank you so much all for joining us today and goodbye.